0: Let us pray. Merciful God, as we remember how your son Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, how seven times he spoke seven words of love, we ask you to bless our hearing. Father, as we recall how all three hours his silence cried for mercy on the souls of all, we ask you to help us to understand the mystery of your love and to make us into a people who are ever more worthy of it. Amen. Our text for this evening's meditation, Heading Home, Forgiven and More Forgiving, comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 18 through 22, where it reads, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, and powers having been subjected to him. And may the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Believe it or not, there are some days when it's harder to preach than others. Good Friday is one of those challenging days for a pastor. Now, you might think it's pretty easy. After all, we're all sinners. Jesus died for our sins, we're forgiven, and now we can get on with life. But you know, as I thought about that, that's exactly the problem. We've heard the Good Friday message so often, like any number of other messages, that it might lose its impact. It would be pretty easy again for us just to walk away and say, I'm a sinner, Jesus died for my sins, I'm forgiven, I got it made. That's why I say it's sometimes difficult to preach on uh, Sunday uh, nights like Good Friday. Because Good Friday not only presents a challenge to the preacher, it also challenges you as a listener. But friends, I want to remind you that uh, we dare not take this Good Friday sermon or this Good Friday service on automatic pilot. Pray, God, that you and I hear the dear old story one more time in a fresh way. That's why I would pray, Lord, may we become more devoted to you. May we be more devoted to your cross. Now, you may have been a bit surprised that the text tonight didn't really talk so much about the suffering and the death of Jesus. It actually talks about baptism. Now, your baptism, like my baptism, oriented your entire life. I mean, you could have gone this way, you could have gone that way, but the miracle of baptism moved you to say, as Moses wrote back in Deuteronomy, my whole life will be oriented toward God. I'm going to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, as the Bible tells me to do. So from the very day of your baptism until the day of your death, you're heading home. We talked about that last night. You're heading home to God. And by the work of the Holy Spirit at the time of your baptism, you pledged yourself to God. You probably don't remember this if you were baptized like I was at about one month old. But no doubt you've had baptisms of either other people in your family, children or grandchildren. And you heard the pastor say as he made that cross both upon the forehead and upon the heart that you were, you were marked as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. It was then that the pastor asked you or uh, your sponsors if you were young to answer on your behalf. He would have asked you, do you renounce the devil? Do you renounce all of his works and all of his ways? Do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Crucified, died, and buried? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting? And to all of those questions, if you were an adult, or if you are a child, your sponsor said, yes, yes we do, or yes I do. Now over the years, you have reaffirmed the direction of your life over and over again. In fact, if you're in church, Virtually every Sunday, you have an invocation that starts in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which is reminding you of your baptism. Every Sunday, you come to celebrate a baptism. You come to celebrate the gift of the sacrament. And the reason you do that is because sin and Satan still are lurking. That's because you are not yet home. So this Good Friday is really another important mile marker on your journey toward heaven. Now, our journey could very well be summed up by David, who wrote in Psalm 73, "...whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever." And I think if we were all to be very honest with each other tonight, we would have to say we're not always as focused on God as we should be. And that's why we especially need an impact on this Good Friday and many other Sundays. Because we dare never take the suffering of Jesus and his death on the cross for granted. Without Good Friday, guess what, friends? We have no forgiveness. We have no hope. For our heavenly inheritance. There's a lot of people who would just as soon skip from a Palm Sunday where you wave your palms and shout the hallelujahs and move directly to Easter without passing go. I posted something the other night, I think on Twitter, that said without Holy Week, it can make you holy weak." There's a true story about a dog named Shep. Shep belonged to an old man who lived in Fort Benton, Benton, Montana. And when the old man died, his body was placed in the casket. It was taken down to the train station. It was shipped back east for burial. Now, no one paid any attention whatsoever to the dog that hung around the station. It was some stray that everybody thought. And that stray, of course, was Shep. Shep saw his master being loaded into the casket saw him loaded onto the train, and he stood there as the train moved out that day. And he would not go home. He would not go home with anyone else. People at the station took care of him. They fed him. And every day for six years, Shep sat on that platform expectantly waiting for an incoming train, hoping to see his master one more time. When I read that story, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we were that focused On looking forward to seeing our master one more time. Wouldn't it be great that this Good Friday, this service, this sermon, our devotion would renew the focus of our lives on God who loved us so much that he would give his only son? I say that because after all, you and I are going to see our master again. We're going to see God, but guess what? We're not going to see him without a Good Friday. The Bible says Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, Jesus is the righteous one, totally right with God, no sins of his own for which he must pay. But this righteous one, Jesus, came into this world and gave his life for the unrighteous. If you want to know who the unrighteous are, stop by at the bathroom on the way out and look in the mirror, and you'll see exactly who I'm talking about. Peter reminds us that we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. We were redeemed, in other words, we were bought back by the very precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So when you think about Good Friday, remember that because of Good Friday, you are forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future. Because of Good Friday, the promises of baptism, whether it was here at this font or somewhere else, the promises of baptism, of forgiveness of sins and life and salvation, are really, really true. Because of Good Friday, you can make good on that baptismal pledge to live for God, the Holy Spirit helping you. And because of Good Friday, you can know that the homecoming will happen. I've written notes to two or three people in the last couple of days who've lost loved ones. And I always pray that God would fill their hearts with peace and grace and mercy, particularly as they now gather together to celebrate the heavenly homecoming of the one that they love. See, we prodigal someday, when we finally reach that final spot, are going to arrive in the arms of our master, in the arms of our waiting father, now, do we have difficulties on this journey home? Yeah, sure we do. Do we get detoured somewhere along the way? Absolutely. I mean, sometimes we have, we actually forget the goal in life delivered to us at our baptisms. Do sins easily entangle us from time to time and get us off the straight and narrow? Of course they do. And that's why we repent daily. Forgive us our sins, we say. The Bible says that you and I are peculiar people. I remember when I first memorized that passage a long time, that we were a holy priesthood, but a peculiar people. And I wondered if that meant we were just a little bit crazy. We were just a little bit off kilter. And I think the longer I live, I think that's a pretty good description of a Christ follower, peculiar Strange, a little bit weird, or even as I've been called from time to time, a Jesus freak. See, peculiar people keep one another focused on goals. Peculiar people remind us constantly of our direction in baptism. Peculiar people gather together, remind one another that we're heading home. And that Jesus is leading us there. Peculiar people enjoy the song that says, I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. The Bible tells us that Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I got to tell you, that Bible passage would not be worth the paper it's written on if God had not raised Jesus from the dead. Good Friday earned your forgiveness. The resurrection on Easter that we're going to celebrate will give you the assurance that God has accepted his son's sacrifice for your sins. It's another way of saying, guess what? Your baptism is real. Baptism now saves you. That's what the text says. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. We're just not bringing a baby up or dipping someone under the waters of the river just so we can get them clean physically. But it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven, who sits at the right hand of his Father today with angels and authorities and powers, everything now at his feet. You know, sad, gloomy, dark, good Fridays always lead to Easter. There's some really cool songs out there, and there's some really cool sermons that I've heard over the years that essentially say, it's Friday. But Sunday's on the way. I've often prayed as a pastor for dark, stormy nights on a good Friday. I vividly remember one as a child, growing up at St. John's Lutheran Church in Seward, Nebraska. And I was never so thrilled as we left the house with my grandpa early, who was the custodian, because it was lightning, and it was thundering, There was a threat of rain. It was one absolutely miserable night. And he allowed me to sit up in the balcony. But I always had to be in clear view of him and my grandma, so I wouldn't act up. But I sat there in that full church that night, and I listened to Pastor Spitz as he preached. And when he got to that point when Jesus shouted out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lightning struck, and the thunder rolled, and I just thought to myself, oh, man. This is way cool. I'm not even sure I understood yet completely, probably at age 9 or 10 or 11. But that's the way I envisioned the time when Jesus died. Sad, dark, gloomy. But by an Easter's, as far as I can remember, seemed like beautiful days. Beautiful days. And if Good Friday had not given away the Easter, if it hadn't, as Paul wrote, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Like I've said this different times. If, if Easter did not happen, we might as well just lock up the doors, go home, and not mess around doing this stuff anymore. You, cannot, you and I can be more forgiving as we have our journey home. Because of Good Friday, we know who we are. We are forgiven people. We're walking home. And we peculiar people on our journey home then can also learn to be more forgiving to others. And to those people who are still outside the body of Christ, who are not following Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, to those who might hurt or harm us in one way or another, we can even be more forgiving to them as well. I mean, since your life is all caught up with God, I mean, don't brood over their sins against you. After all, their sins are between them and God. Let God take care of their sins. He did not make you judge or jury over other people. But for us, why should you and I live in the bondage of unforgiveness? I mean, forgiven and heading home, we can be absolutely positively more forgiving people. That's because we're sure of who Jesus is. Crucified, risen, ascended, sitting at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. You might say that we can be more forgiving Because through Christ, we can be more comfortable in our own skin. The skin of Jesus. The skin of the body of Christ. So yes, it is a challenge to preach on a Good Friday. And it is a challenge for all of us to take heart the eternal importance of a night like this. And my prayer as I put together this message, not only for myself, but more importantly, for those of you that would hear it, is that, is that this special service would again lock your sight on the cross. See, devotedly we wait to see our Master. Jesus' cross is the season or the reason the way is open and that we're heading home. In our closing this evening, as we descend into darkness, we're going to sing. Kind of a favorite old song before we hear those last words on the cross. So let's join together in singing hymn number 456. Were you there when they crucified the Lord? The first word on the cross. When they came to the place called the skull, they nailed Jesus to the cross there and the two criminals, one on his right and one on his left, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. My question is, did they really not know what they were doing? I mean, Judas knew he betrayed his friend and master. Pilate knew he condemned an innocent man to death. The Jewish council knew that they had secured a false verdict by bribing witnesses. These people were not ignorant of their crimes, but they were ignorant of its enormity. They did not realize that they were crucifying the very Son of God. So Jesus asked God to forgive them. But is this forgiveness only for those people who played a direct role in Jesus' crucifixion? Or is this forgiveness also for each of us who do know what we're doing when we try to make a name for ourselves or put selfish interests first or ignore the needs of others? His forgiveness is needed even more when we do know what we are doing. Now, forgiveness does not mean the, the, an absence of judgment or justice. Jesus never suggested that they were right to do what they were doing. He did not forgive and then call the wrong right. Instead, he forgave the wrong in order to make things right with the wrongdoer. He forgave so that the world would not be condemned but saved through him. We pray. Father, forgive us when we don't know what we're doing, and please be even more merciful when we do. The second word. When of the criminals hanging there through insults at him? Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other one, however, rebuked him, saying, don't you fear God. Here we all are under the same sentence. Ours, however, is only right, for we are getting what we deserve for what we did. But he has done no wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me, Jesus, when you come as king. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Have you ever wondered why this thief deserved such a reward? He was a hardened criminal who obviously lived a Unrighteous life. I mean, there's no telling what atrocities this guy committed in order to be crucified. For his whole life, he probably looked upon other people as potential victims for whatever he was doing. But you know something? It's kind of hard to pick somebody's pocket when your hands are nailed to a cross. And in his last breath, this thief learned a simple but profound truth. Paradise is not achievable. It's only Receivable. No matter how hard we work to earn it, legally or illegally, we will never reach the paradise we seek. We can only get there through the invitation of Jesus. See, the thief is rewarded for his ability to see what few others saw. He was convinced that Jesus was the king because he asked to be remembered when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And when we look at the cross, do we only see a bloody victim? Or do we see a king whose arms are outstretched and say, welcome into my kingdom? We pray. Almighty God, help us see that paradise, the paradise that we seek can be found in the open arms of your son. Amen. The third word. Standing close to Jesus' cross where his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, Jesus saw his mother and disciple he loved standing there, so he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that time, the disciple took her to live in his home. Now, if if there were ever a moment that you would expect a person to think only of himself, it might be at the hour of his death. Yet even now, Jesus is still more concerned with other people. I mean, the vision of Mary reminds him of what we often forget. We know Mary is a saint, but we forget that she was also a mother. She was the one who probably took care of his scraped knees and his colic and waited for him to show up after playing. And now she knows the worst pain of all, watching her son die. So why would we be so surprised that Jesus would look out for her? As the eldest son in the house, it was his job to provide for her and to remain faithful. And so he saw to it that his mother had a home to which she could go, even as he prepared to go to his. And the other person in this story, John, learns that when you come to the cross, you better be ready for a new responsibility. I mean, Jesus does not come, call us to come to the cross to watch him die. He calls us there to give us his call. And the closer we stand to that cross, the better able we are to hear that call. We come to the cross to die to our own plans and ambitions and instead accept the yoke given by the one who hung there in our place. We pray. Holy God, may we be as mothers and sons to each other, living out Jesus' call from the cross to take care of each other as a family bonded together by your love. Amen. The fourth word. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? Which means, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I have no doubt that had we been standing there that evening, that cry of anguish would have been gut-wrenching. I mean, why were these... Words actually even included in the Gospels. I mean, why would we want to know that all of a sudden Jesus actually felt forsaken by his father? And did God really turn his back on his son at this time? See, when he went to the cross, Jesus took all of our sins with him. But that doesn't mean that it was just your sins and my sins. He died for the sins of all humanity, past and present and future. It was not just sins, but sin itself. And so Jesus had to feel the full effect of God's punishment for our sins. His soul had to share in the punishment of our sins. And at that moment, Jesus became guilty of the worst things that you and I could ever do. He was guilty of murder and molestation and greed and selfishness and on and on. And hopefully you understand what Jesus was doing. Because God is a just God. He could either inflict punishment for our sins or he could assume the punishment. And he endures infinite suffering in these three hours. And the Father turns away from Jesus so that he never has to turn away from us. We can't fully understand what happened between God and Jesus at this moment. We can only accept the level of pain and suffering and that it was done for us. And in the midst of that devastating time, Jesus still says, My God. This is a cry of distress. But not distrust. We pray. Merciful God, thank you for conquering death. Help us to cry out, my God. Even when we feel forsaken. Remind us that you never leave our side. Even in the darkest of times. The fifth word. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst You a know, part of the power of what Jesus does for us on the cross is that he's doing it as a fully human being. I mean, this is not a God going through some sort of an act to make us think he's suffering. This is Jesus of Nazareth, a flesh and blood human beaten and bloody and nailed to a cross. And his thirst is another sign of the physical anguish that he's suffering. But his thirst is for more than just water. Jesus spoke often of water in the Bible. In John's Gospel, he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus promised the living waters of baptism to quench the thirst of our souls for meaning and purpose. So what a strange twist of irony that the very person who suggested that he is the source of living water is now famished in body and soul. This is the cry of all who are thirsty, not just for water, but for those who cry out for justice. Or for a place at God's table. Jesus drank the cup of death, which doesn't quench thirst, but it only heightens it. He did this so that everyone might drink from the cup of life, which we take every time we come to the Lord's table for communion. Through his death, the thirst of our souls is quenched. We pray. Giving God who poured out his blood so that we might never be thirsty. Help us to see the needs of others and meet them as Christ has done for us. Amen. The sixth word. A bowl was there full of cheap wine mixed with vinegar. So a sponge was soaked in it, put on a stick of hyssop and lifted up to his lips. Where Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And indeed, it is finished. Now, Pilate thought that with the death of Jesus, this so-called king's reign would be over and the rebellion would be squelched. It is finished. The disciples thought that Rome had won and finally silenced Jesus, a dead Messiah. After all, is no Messiah at all. It is finished. But Jesus knew what was really finished. I mean, scripture had been fulfilled. Sin and death had been defeated. Redemption had been completed. Humanity had been reconciled to God once and for all time. His work, which he was sent to do, was completed. It was finished. But I hope you notice he did not say, I am finished. Because God still had more in store for Jesus in a few short days. But on this day, By his death on the cross, Jesus has finished more than just his earthly life. He has finished the mission for which he was sent. When the time comes, friends, when we face our own death, will we be able to look at what God has called us to do here on this earth and utter the same words? Our lives are works in progress. May God grant us the grace and the courage to finish them. We pray. God of all life, use your power and majesty to bring to completion the work you have called us to do, just as you followed Jesus to the cross and beyond. Amen. And the seventh and final words. Then Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The very first recorded words of Jesus where when he was found in the temple and says to his parents, Don't you know that I had to be about my father's business? And now that that business is finished, he can say, Into your hands I commend my spirit. These are the last words of Jesus on the cross. There are no curses from his mouth, no loathing contempt, no self-righteous condensation, no bitter resignation. Instead, he ends his life with a prayer of faith, The same prayer that Jewish mothers taught their little children to say at bedtime every night. It was a fitting end to an extraordinary life. He was betrayed into the hands of sinners, but always in control of his life. And it is only at this moment when everything is accomplished that he chooses to give his life back to his father. That allows God to restore Christ's spirit in the days to come. To whom does our life belong, friends? We don't have to wait until our dying breath to commend our spirit to God. We can choose this very day, this very evening, in the shadow of the cross, to give our life to God for his use. God wants to restore us as well. Will we let Christ's death on the cross go unnoticed in our life? Or will we choose to put our life in God's hands? We pray. Loving God, thank you for opening your arms to receive us. We commend ourselves to you this day as we accept the gift of life given by your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.